Welcome to the podcast of Redeemer Baptist Church of Panama. We hope that you enjoyed listening to the sermons and other audio provided by us. Feel free to share what you find here, and we hope that it will be beneficial to you as you seek to know and follow Christ. You can open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Um, As we've been going through these letters to the seven churches in Revelation, Jesus has been speaking to us. He wrote these first letters in their original context were written to seven different churches. But as we see in each one of these letters, it says, um, let him who has ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Even though it's to individual churches, it's... It's to all churches everywhere. So as we come tonight and we listen to God's Word from Jesus Himself addressing His churches, this is for us. Uh, we, we don't stand in Pergamum's place. Uh, there, you, you look at Pergamum, and so I'm sure that they're a lot different than what we are today. But yet, there are things within this passage that apply to us that we need to hear. We need God to speak to us. Remember, before Jesus begins to tell John what to write to each of these seven churches, we see this vision of Jesus and how Jesus is standing before John with uh, with bright white hair, with a robe that goes down to his feet, with a golden sash. He has a, a sword coming out of his mouth. His eyes are like flames of fire and he walks among the lampstands. And also he's holding the seven stars in his hands. We see how Jesus is present with his churches. He walks among his churches as he walks among the lampstands. He holds them in his hands as he holds those seven stars. He is in control. He is Lord of his church. And his eyes are like flames of fire. He sees right down to the core of who we are. He is present and he is very aware of what is going on here in his church. Here, Jesus begins by telling he is the one who has the sword coming out of his mouth. What is that supposed to mean to us? What is that supposed to mean? We, we can think of many different things that, that uh, a sword might be used for. You know, it might be used for battle. It might be used for judgment. It might uh, be used in the, in the sense that Romans tells us, uh, you know, God gives the, the government the sword to be able to punish evil. Um, we think often, I think often, whenever I, I read uh, in Hebrews about how the sword is sharper than any two-edged sword, about how it's able to, to um, divide even between the bone and the marrow, about how God's Word comes to us and performs surgery on our hearts. He cuts away the sin and different things. But here, Jesus, I think there's a very specific way that He is using this This image where he comes to his church with a sword. He comes to his church with a sword of judgment. Let's read what it says to the church in Revelation 2, beginning in verse 12. 
And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us, Lord, that you... You do do surgery upon us by Your Word. As we look into the mirror of Your Word, You you show us what we need to change, Lord. You call us to repentance. And Father, we pray now that we would have ears to hear what Your Spirit is saying to the churches. Father, we pray that uh, You would be with me. Lord, I am weak, frail, I'm a sinner. You are strong. Lord, I pray that you would give me strength to preach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus addresses this letter just like many of the other ones. He says, to the angel of the church of Pergamum. Pergamum was probably the, the, the capital of, not, not the, the political capital, but the capital of their, um, their uh, it was the center of their um, Caesar worship, uh, where, where Diocletian, the, the empire, uh, wanted uh, worship for himself, and, and the centered around Pergamum itself. So Jesus here, he says, to the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. They live in a dangerous place. They live in a place where he calls it Satan's, where Satan's very throne is. Where this cult of empire worship, of emperor worship is thriving. Jesus knows that his church is there in a bad place. He, he says where Satan's throne is. And yet, while they live in this dangerous place, this place where Satan's throne is, they're holding fast to his name. They're holding fast. They're being faithful. Jesus says, you hold fast my name and you didn't deny the faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Because of this emperor worship, you know, Christians may have been accused and brought before the tribunals and things like that so that, so that uh, they would be told, you must recant. You've got to deny Jesus. You're going to do these things or we're going to kill you. We're going to throw you to the lions. We're going to burn you with fire. Whatever 
Yet, they held fast. They held to Jesus' name. They would not deny Him. And even they saw one of their very own members, this Antipas that was among them. Antipas was taken and he was killed. And yet they still, in spite of seeing their brother killed, they continued to hold fast to Jesus' name. We have many pressures upon us today, some of them political, some of them cultural. We don't tend to to face the kind of persecution that could lead us to death here in America today, but there are places in the world where where Christians do. We do face different things that pressure us. Pressure us to conform to the culture around us. Uh, the, The idea of being ridiculed for being a bigot or things like that. Jesus says the good thing that His church has is they held fast to His name. They would not deny even whenever they saw how Antipas was treated. Jesus then says to him, but I have a few things against you. Isn't that the way these letters seem to be? Out of five of these seven churches, Jesus, He begins with something good. He commends them for what's positive there, yet then He follows that up and He gives them a criticism of which they need to repent. He says, that I have this against you. You have some who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. That's what Bradley was reading from Numbers chapter 25. In this story, Balaam, of course we know another story about Balaam if we've heard the the old stories from from, uh, the Pentateuch. How Balaam, you know, Balak told Balaam to go and put a stumbling block before the people of Israel. He told them to... um, to, um, to curse them. And God sent an angel of the Lord, right? He sent an angel of the Lord before Balaam. And and as um, Balaam was coming, um, I'll just give patience so they can go sit down with their parents. Thank you. Sometimes it's hard, but I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful we have kids around here. Amen. You know, I mean, it would it would be it, it's sometimes hard, sometimes it's distracting. But man, what's the alternative? Not having kids around, and so we're, I'm just thankful. I'm thankful that we have some kids here. That's a it's a beautiful thing. It's it's not we shouldn't see them as a distraction, but we need to see them as a blessing to be here. So that's that's wonderful. I'm I'm going to try to get back on my train of thought now. Sorry. So Balaam, you know, he, he comes on this donkey and the Lord sends his angel uh, and, and Balaam can't see his donkey, can't see his, uh, the angel. And we know this story of how, how the donkey talks to Balaam to rescue him. Well, another story is what we saw there in, November, in um, Numbers chapter 25, where um, the, this uh, Moabite, um, Balak caused the the Moabite women to come and seduce these Israelite men. They were they were falling into idolatry. They were falling into um, sexual immorality. And what did the Lord do? He sent a plague on his very own people. 
He sent a plague on them, killed 24,000 of His very own people because the Lord took the purity of His people seriously. And took drastic measures before the Lord called off this this, um, plague. Jesus says these people there in in the Pergamum church, they're falling into the same kind of sin. They're they're toying with, they're they're being tempted to flirt with the idea of sexual immorality, of uh, idolatry. Uh, It says the teachings of Balaam. Notice verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have... um, you have some there who hold the teaching, the teachings of Balaam. So they're flirting with this idea. It's an idea. It's a false teaching that they're, they're having among them. It doesn't say they're actually following in their practices, but it's the teaching to think, well, it, it's not that bad of a deal. Not, not, not that bad to, you know, maybe it wouldn't be so bad if we just sacrificed a little bit of incense to the, the, Roman, the Roman gods. If we, we can get away from the persecution and things like that. Or, or, you know, the culture all around them was full of sexual immorality. And they may have been, just been kind of softening their teaching so that they wouldn't be quite of an offense to those around them. And that's the kind of teaching that Balaam had. And I think that's probably what we see. It says, verse 15, you also have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans, we don't know anything about except for here and in the letter to the Ephesian church. Uh, probably it's, it's the, 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 those who hold the teachings of Balaam are the same ones who are the, uh, the Nicolaitans, the, the, the ones who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. It's a, it's a false teaching that says, let us sin so that grace may abound. Let it, it doesn't really matter. We've, we've been forgiven of our sins, so let's just go live however we want to live and, and let's just make peace with the enemy. Jesus says to a church that has that attitude, repent. Repent. Now they've been faithful. They, they haven't denied Jesus' name. They've stood firm. Yet they've had some among them who were beginning to flirt with idolatry, just to kind of flirt with the idea of sexual immorality. And Jesus tells the whole church, some of them were holding this teaching, but Jesus tells the whole church, you all must repent. If not, Jesus warns, I will come to you soon and war against you with the sword of my mouth. Jesus threatens His people. He threatens to come and and basically make war on His people like God did in the Old Testament whenever Balaam put this stumbling block before the people. He came with a plague at that time. Jesus says He comes with His sword and He's going to make war on those who hold the false teaching. Look at this. In that verse, verse 16, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He tells the whole church to repent, and yet he says, I will make war against them. There is a sense in which the whole church needs to repent, 
But who is it that Jesus is going to make war against? It's the ones who hold the false teaching. How is it that this church in Pergamum is supposed to repent? How do they do that? Well, I think it is the fact that they were tolerating among their membership those who hold these false teachings. What Jesus is commanding them to do whenever they are to repent, they are to practice church discipline. It's just like in 1 Corinthians. Whenever, whenever uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that he is astonished that uh, they have within their membership someone who had been sexually immoral with their own stepmother. What did Paul tell them to do? He said to cast that one out so that he can be saved. Hand him over to Satan so that he would be recovered. So that he would see the error of his ways and return and repent. Well, Jesus here, the whole church is to repent by not tolerating that false teaching that leads to sexual immorality within their midst. They are to repent of that and practice discipline. Jesus gave instructions for that in Matthew chapter 18, where you go to a person individually, confront them about their sin. And um, if they still don't repent, you go to them with another person. If they still don't repent, you bring it before the whole church. Both Jesus and Paul gave us this instruction. And we see from the Old Testament, God took it really seriously. What happened whenever the people tolerated false teaching and sexual immorality among uh, themselves? He sent a plague and killed 24,000 people. But here... Jesus tells His church, repent. Don't tolerate them among yourselves. Discipline. So that they can be saved. If, if, God, if, if the church practices discipline, draws a line, says this is not within Christian teaching, the, the, uh, the object would be that they would also repent of their sin and God would relent. Jesus would not come to them with the sword. It is for redemption's sake. And Jesus says, let him who has ear hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, while this was written to Pergamum, it is intended for our instruction as well. How often are we tempted to just make peace with the world around us? How often are we tempted into a kind of idolatry. We may not bow down to some uh, Asherah pole like they did in the Old Testament, yet the heart of idolatry is going to something other than God to have our needs met. We want to have our needs met. So these ancient cultures, what would they do? They would go and they would bow down to these idols and do all these things, these religious practices, because they wanted the gods to somehow have favor on them and give them good crops and all those kinds of things. That the heart of idolatry is the same thing. We want to have our needs met apart from God. We want to have our needs met by our own desires, whatever it is that we want. And sexual immorality is very similar. We want to have our physical appetites met in some other way than what God has designed for them to be met. There's a connection there between idolatry and sexual immorality because it's we want our needs met the way we want them to instead of the way Jesus has for us. 
So in a very real sense, this is for us. We live in a culture that says, you can't judge me. I can do whatever I want. And we are under so much pressure to just give in to what the culture around us says. But Jesus gives us a promise to the one who overcomes, to the one who can stand firm, to the one who overcomes. He promises, the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a stone, a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Why do we want those things? What are those things? He'll give some hidden manna. He'll give a white stone. Why is it? What is it that, about those things that should motivate us to be obedient to Jesus? Well, what is manna? We, we know the story from, from uh, the early chapters, the early um, um, books of the Bible, of the Old Testament, about how the people had manna to eat in the wilderness. They were, they were uh, God took care of them. He provided for their needs. And in Deuteronomy, we read that God gave the people manna so that they would learn that man shall live not by bread alone, but by every word which comes from God. This hidden manna is the thing that's promised to the one who overcomes because the one who overcomes knows that what Jesus has to give will meet his needs better than anything the world has to offer. That hidden manna is a promise that God will meet our needs in a way that is better than anything we could want from idolatry. And then that white stone with a new name on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. What is it that is desired out of sexual immorality but intimacy? We, we're all wired for intimacy. We're all wired to want to be close with another person, to have intimacy. And yet, sexual immorality tempts us towards a false intimacy that lets us down, that's always fake. Not the kind of intimacy that Jesus promises for His people. This white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. Certainly God the Father knows what this name is. So God the Father and this person who overcomes share this intimate knowledge that nobody knows except for God and that person. It's a very intimate, close thing. What I think God is promising here, what Jesus is promising here for the one who overcomes, you can have an intimacy with God. A kind that no one will know about except for you and Him to the one who overcomes. Let us hear these words again. Let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We need to hear this to the one who overcomes. Jesus will give hidden manna. He will take care of our every need. And He will give a white stone. He promises intimacy with Him.
So overcome. Press on. Repent if we need to. Repent. And He promises to take care of all of our needs. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Baptist Church of Panama. For more information, please visit us at redeemerbaptistpanama.wordpress.com or you can like us on Facebook. Facebook.